0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to John 10. We hit a big chunk last week. We got through all of John 9. We're not going to get through all of John 10 this evening, just the first 21 verses, Lord Willing. John 10. I'll be getting verse 1. We'll go through verse 21 this evening. Shepherds and Sheepfolds is the title that you have there if you have your notes or if you're you're, you're taking notes. Jesus Christ, that picture of him as the shepherd of the sheep is one of the most common Portrayals of our Lord and Savior. Every week we come into this building, we sit, we listen, and one of the stained glass portrayals that is on this building, the one that is in fact in the front of the building, all patched up with duct tape right now, but the one that is in the front of the building, is a portrayal of Jesus Christ carrying a lamb. Or a man, I suppose, carrying a lamb. We would presume it to be Jesus Christ some other sheep around him, him carrying a lamb. The thought of Jesus Christ as our shepherd can bring to many of us fond memories, memories of David's words in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It reminds us that Jesus will find us when we stray. As Brother Grismore just said, he will find us when we stray, for we can indeed stray. It reminds us that Jesus will keep us from harm. But aside from the implications of Jesus being good, uh, being the good shepherd, I suppose, upon us as his sheep, focusing on us as his sheep, John 10 has a little bit of a different focus. It's not so much focused on the sheep, it's actually focused on the shepherd. And it's important for us as we consider this chapter of Scripture to remember that that we're not focusing upon the sheep in this, in this passage as much as we are focusing upon the shepherd and the way the shepherd loves, pursues, and cares for the sheep. So we're not going to be us-focused this evening. We're going to be Christ-focused. And as we do so, there's something that I need to lay a foundation for this evening. I believe in your notes there, if you have them, there is a gap before you get to the outline. Am I correct in that? Brady's nodding his head yes. There's a gap, and that gap is for some principles. See, what Jesus Christ will be doing this evening, and it's the first time in the book of John that we see this, is he will be speaking through parables. When Jesus Christ speaks through parables, this is a particular medium that we need to have an understanding of, both in context and purpose, if we are going to get the meaning proper. If we don't understand the context and the purpose of the parable and if we don't understand how parables work, then we are at risk of being able to develop all sorts of false doctrine or wrong application from parables. And so as we begin, I'm going to teach you a little bit about parable and I'm actually going to give you four principles as well of parables. And then after that we'll jump into looking directly at John chapter 10. The term Parable represents numerous types of figures of speech in the Scripture. But all types of parables, if they are specifically parables, were intended to accomplish the same end. Parables focused upon one primary truth and were intended to convey a specific instruction. One primary truth with a specific instruction. Parables also always focused on Moving or transitioning from a known concept to an unknown concept. They always transitioned from something that the listener would understand well to something that they didn't know, and there was a link between them that would then help the listener understand the concept better. Parables to a specific audience. Never begin in the realm of the unknown with relation to that audience. The audience always immediately can recognize the premise upon which that parable is built. Now, a parable is not an allegory. They, are, they should not be regarded as the same thing. As we think of allegories, allegories are not based upon reality. Allegories seek to tie concepts... Uh, they Excuse me. They, they don't seek to tie concepts to objective reality. Rather, they are trying to employ imagination to link things together. Allegory focuses upon every element within a story. If you think of perhaps Pilgrim's Progress. Every element within an imaginary story is meant to link to another element in reality in order to help a person think through the concepts of reality through their imagination. Parables are not like that. Parables have one focus, one truth, and they take an objective reality to teach a known objective reality to teach an unknown objective reality. So as we begin looking at parables this evening, I'd like to start with four principles of parables that will help us, not just in John 10, but anywhere where you see a parable, very heavy in the book of Matthew we know, anywhere where you see a parable, these principles will help you. Principle number one, the parables of Jesus Christ concern the kingdom of heaven. The parables of Jesus Christ concern the kingdom of heaven. Now, the kingdom of heaven includes the church, but is not exclusive to, to the church, either perspective or local, now that we've made distinctions. It is not exclusive to those who are in Christ. It is not exclusive to those who have, who have died in this age that we would call the church age. Parables can go beyond that. Jesus Christ was teaching to Jews, and he was oftentimes teaching within a Jewish context as well. He was teaching about the kingdom, His teaching was focused not just on those who would be in Christ in our age, but on those who would be in the kingdom where there is a very different manner in which we will worship God than the one that we're worshiping in the church age. So while it is possible for us as Christians in this age to apply many parable truths to our lives and to our churches, the church is not necessarily the exclusive focus of parables. The kingdom is the focus of the parables. That helps us because there are some things which we cannot always fully parallel in this age with the parables of Jesus Christ. We can either tear our hair out trying to make them fit the church age, or we can recognize that Jesus Christ was teaching in relation to the kingdom of heaven. And oftentimes in his parables, he says the kingdom of heaven is. Well, the kingdom of heaven... The kingdom that is to come is not just going to be made up of those who died in this age. Number two, principle number two, parables are never spoken outside of the immediate context. They are never spoken outside of the immediate context. Parables were almost always a direct response to a question in Jesus Christ's ministry. To that end, we cannot rightly interpret a parable without first understanding why the parable was presented. What question is Jesus Christ attempting to answer? What is the context within which this parable is being presented? Excuse me. Principle number three, as we hasten on. There is one primary point that is conveyed in each parable. There is one primary point that is the focus of each parable. Now, we may be able to draw good parallels to other pieces of any given parallel, but there is only one element that reflects the authoritative intent of Jesus Christ in that teaching, and that is the element that answers the context in which the parable was given. Let me give you an example. In Luke 18, verses 1 through 8, Jesus Christ gives the parable of the persistent widow who is crying to an unjust judge until that unjust judge finally avenges her of her enemies. Perhaps you know the the account. Now, in verse 1 of Luke 18, it says specifically that the purpose of the parable is to teach men that they ought always to pray. It says specifically this parable Jesus gave in order to teach men that they ought always to pray to pray. Now when we know this, it's not always that clear. It's not always directly this is what Jesus was teaching here. Many times we can't see that. We have to recognize from the context Jesus Christ's purpose. But when we when we know this, when we recognize this, we will understand then as we're looking through that parable that Jesus Christ is not emphasizing the judge. He has no emphasis at all upon the unjust judge. Every bit of his emphasis in that parallel should be focused in that parable should be focused upon the persistent widow because jesus christ is teaching us that men ought always to pray so maybe we can take the unjust judge and we can draw some concepts from it that would that we could you know put in various aspects of the christian life but as we're doing so, we must recognize that that was not Jesus Christ's point in giving the parable. He didn't give it to teach us something about the unjust judge. He gave us some, something to teach us about the widow, the persistent widow, and her persistence, particularly the request that she was making. Now, if we give too much attention to the judge, we run the risk of completely misinterpreting the parable, and we run the risk of missing Christ's point Of persistence in prayer. The first principle, parables of Jesus Christ concerned the kingdom of heaven. Second principle, parables never spoke outside of the immediate context. Third principle, there is one primary point that is conveyed in each parable. Fourth point, since parables transfer from the known to the unknown, it is very important that we understand. The known element of Christ's teaching before we can fully understand the unknown element. An example one cannot understand the parable of the sower of the seed unless one understands the cultural practice of sowing seeds, unless one understands the cultural practice of a man going out and throwing seeds to sow them into a field. If we don't understand what Jesus Christ was teaching in the known realm, we're never going to understand what he was trying to teach them about the unknown. And so we must, we must with the listener, transfer ourselves from the known to the unknown. So with those four principles in mind, I would like us to look this evening at John 10, the first 21 verses, as we look at the parables of the Good Shepherd in John 10. And we're going to look at it in three points this evening. The first one being in verses one through six, the nature of the good shepherd, the nature of the good shepherd. We enter this parable following the healing of the blind man from birth. We remember that from last week and Jesus is teaching on spiritual blindness. We talked about the paradoxes of Christianity last week that teaches us that if we are to see, we need to become blind and that we will be blind if we think we see. It is within this immediate context that Jesus begins the Good Shepherd parable. That's our context. We recall that context. The context, then, is a vast rejection of Jesus Christ by the leaders of Israel, even though he has come fulfilling both the law and the prophets. So we see that this contrast. We see this paradox. We see this, this rejection as well as some who have believed, and this is the context within which we approach John chapter 10. Now, a sheepfold in biblical times was a place of protection and security for sheep. It was made either with stone or with thorny bushes. Either they would take a bunch of stones and they would stack it into perhaps a square or a round a pen of sorts with a very narrow opening, or they would take a bunch of, of, of thickets, of bushes, of thorns, And they would put it around to encourage the sheep not to try to mess with it. But it wasn't so much to keep the sheep in. The purpose was actually not to contain the sheep. The purpose was to keep things out, to protect the sheep from wolves, from thieves. It was a protection. They would have that very narrow entrance, and the entrance would be guarded by a porter. It was not often guarded by the shepherd himself. When the, she- the sheep went into the sheepfold, the reason why the sheep went into the sheepfold is so that the shepherds could go do something else. And they would hire a porter. They would hire a man to watch the door, to keep the door, to let only the shepherds in. To, and, of course, the sheep wouldn't be able to really get out. And then to guard the sheep, to protect the sheep. Now, Within biblical times, numerous shepherds would place their sheep into these sheepfolds. It was not as if each shepherd had their own sheepfold. You'd have Bob on, on this hill and Frank on that hill, and uh, they would both take their sheep and they would bring them to the same sheepfold. And those sheep would, would mix. They'd bring their sheep in, and you'd have Bob, sheep and Frank sheep, and those sheep are just all eaten within the, in the sheepfold. There was really no distinguishing. They would just put them all in there. In this way, the sheep would be protected. They could be the most economical possible because they wouldn't have to have a bunch of shepherds watching the sheep. And the shepherds could go do other things that they needed to do when they couldn't be watching the sheep. Now with that in mind, understanding what a sheepfold is, let's consider the parable. Look with me in verse 1. Jesus Christ says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. Do you remember in John 9, verse 4, we talked about it last week when Jesus said that he must work the works of God while it was yet day? We mentioned that Jesus Christ had a season for ministry, and during that season of ministry, this was the time when his light shined into the world. Now, what Jesus was emphasizing as he begins this parallel is that any ministry that is true will reflect truth. In layman's terms, he was kind of saying this. If it looks like a duck, if it walks like a duck, if it quacks like a duck, it's a duck. Jesus Christ was saying if someone comes into the sheepfold the right way, then he's the shepherd of the sheep. If somebody doesn't come into the sheepfold the right way, then he's not the true shepherd. He's a thief. He's a robber. Jesus Christ is emphasizing an element of truth here. The problem Jesus has faced among the Jews is a problem of perception. Everyone sees the signs of Messiah through Jesus, but they are hung up on the faulty misconceptions of spirituality. He doesn't keep the Sabbath because he healed someone on a Sabbath day. These confusing, faulty concepts of what they believed it was to be spiritual, they were hung up on those and they, they didn't realize or they didn't think or they didn't consider. They knew, but they didn't consider That of all the men that had claimed authority in the past, even those men, the Jews, the Pharisees, which is the one that truly came through the door? Which is the one that truly fulfilled the law and the prophets? Who is the only one in their history who conformed himself to everything that needed to be, to to every prophecy and to every expectation of the law? So if a man desires to judge the character of a a shepherd, he simply needs to judge whether that shepherd enters through the pre-established means to get to the sheep, or whether he seeks to corral the sheep by jumping over the wall. Jesus Christ was insinuating here, and we'll see it throughout. He says, I came in the right way. I came in through the door to my sheep because I'm the true shepherd. I am the good shepherd. Now, we already said that many shepherds would combine their sheep into singular sheepfolds. On the contrary to the thief or the robber, Jesus Christ goes on to say that when the shepherd comes through the door, his sheep know him. Look at verse 3. To him the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calleth his own sheep by name, and leadeth them out." And when he putteth forth his own sheep, he goeth before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. And a stranger will they not follow, but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of strangers. See, it was not a problem for Frank and Bob to put their sheep into the same sheepfold. Though these sheep were mixed together, this did not form any sort of hindrance for Bob or for Frank. See, because the sheep knew the voice of the shepherd. And so when the shepherd would walk through the gate into a sheepfold, and he would have a distinctive call for his sheep. This call would be unlike another call. This call would be in his voice. It would have his inflection. And this call from the very youngest days of these sheep, of these lambs' lives, was heard. They knew it, and they knew when they heard it that this was their shepherd. And they trusted their shepherd and they loved their shepherd because their shepherd feeds them, because their shepherd brings them to water, because their shepherd brings them to food, because their shepherd knows what's best for them. And so immediately his sheep will come to him and the shepherd can lead his sheep out and take them where they need to go. And so they didn't have to worry about branding or RFID chips or anything to make sure they knew whose sheep was whose. It wasn't wasn't a problem because the sheep know the voice of the shepherd and will follow the voice of their shepherd. The emphasis of this parable, then, is upon the shepherd, not upon the sheep. We cannot draw from this parable ideas about the sheep. And we need to be careful not to draw ideas from this parable about the sheep if we attempt to draw ideas parable concepts about the sheep then what we're going to begin to do is draw out that idea that well jesus christ's sheep are already chosen he already has his sheep in the sheepfold and when he calls the only ones that can respond are those that were already his sheep but you see that's not how parables work We can't do that in a parable. Parables have one primary truth and we need to recognize that primary truth and we need to focus on that primary truth and not allow ourselves to be distracted by the other elements of the parable because they are there to support the primary truth. They are there to get get the truth from the known to the unknown. And so what Jesus Christ is not teaching here is unconditional election. Jesus Christ is not teaching here that his sheep are already chosen and when he walks into the sheepfold he's going to call their name and the sheep that are already chosen are going to hear his name and they're all going to walk out together merrily. No, 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 no. See, the sheep are there because Jesus Christ needs to teach about a shepherd and you can't teach about a shepherd without sheep. And so the primary truth of this parable is that he is the good shepherd. The primary truth about this parable is that he came in the right way. That is the truth that we're focusing on. That Jesus Christ came the right way and he's telling them, look, I came the right way. The law and the prophets was the way that you needed your Messiah to come and I'm here. The law and the prophets, I have, I have conformed myself to that. However, though Jesus Christ has taught about his nature, he has not yet revealed the purpose with which he gave his parable. We'll explore this in the next two points. So let's look at them together. The nature of the good shepherd, truth, authority, coming in the right way. Second point this evening, the purpose of the Good Shepherd, the purpose of the Good Shepherd. In verse 7, Jesus turns his focus from his nature to his ministry and his purpose. Now, do not allow Jesus Christ's change of perspective here to confuse you. We need to remember, again, that parables seek to communicate a primary truth by going from the known to the unknown. So Jesus tells his listeners this time that he is the door of the sheep. He says, I am the door of the sheep. Verse 7, then said Jesus unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. So he changes his perspective. He, was telling, he, he told them, I am the shepherd of the sheep. He was relaying to them his nature and his authority. Now he's relaying to them his purpose. There had been other men that had come before Jesus Christ in the history of Israel who had claimed to be true shepherds of the sheep. As I thought about this, I thought of Ezekiel 34. In Ezekiel 34, the prophet condemns the leaders of Israel who took upon themselves the mantle of being shepherds but fleeced the flock instead of feeding the flock. Let me read to you Ezekiel 34, verses 2 through 4. God speaking, he says, Son of man, speaking to Ezekiel, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God unto the shepherds, Woe be to the shepherds of Israel that do, not, that do feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? Ye eat the fat, ye clothe you with the wool. Ye kill them that are fed, but ye feed not the flock. The disease have ye not strengthened, neither have ye healed that which was sick, neither have ye bound up that which was broken, neither have ye brought again that which was driven away, neither have ye sought that which was lost, but with force and with cruelty have ye ruled them. Here, God is condemning those in Israel who called themselves Israel's leaders because they were false shepherds because they were claiming to do what was best for Israel, but in fact, they were just fleecing the flock. They were using this flock to clothe themselves and to feed themselves, but they didn't feed the flock. They didn't care for the flock. God says, you are false shepherds. And later on in Ezekiel, as well as in the book of Jeremiah, he promises that he would be the good shepherd. He says, I am going to become your good shepherd. Well, wouldn't you know it? Jesus Christ here is saying, I am the good shepherd. No doubt the minds of the people went to Ezekiel. No doubt they knew exactly what he was saying when he called himself the good shepherd. He says, I'm the shepherd that God has promised. I am the shepherd that will care for the sheep. And he says, I've come in the right way. But Christ teaches here that the sheep did not hear them. Excuse me. Throughout Israel's history they've experienced these men these men who were fleecing the flock these men who claimed to be representatives of God but used their position for their own gain to strip them of their their wealth or whatever the case may be but not to lead them to God and the sheep Christ says did not hear them those whose loyalty rested with God above men throughout the centuries of Israel's existence refused these false teachings and false shepherds and rejected their authority because the sheep wait for the voice of the shepherd. Not only is Christ's purpose realized through salvation, but it is also realized through protection and provision. Whereas the false shepherds came in order that they might fleece the flock and secure their own happiness at the expense of the flock... The Good Shepherd, his mind is fixed upon provision for the flock. And so under the care of the Good Shepherd, his sheep have the freedom to go in and out and to find pasture for rest and provision. The contrast is solidified in verse 10. Jesus Christ says, "The thief cometh not to knot, uh, but for to steal and to kill and to destroy." I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Do you see all that Jesus Christ is saying? He says, I am the shepherd of the sheep. This is my nature. This is my character. I came in the true way. But then he says again, I am the door. The sheep come in and out through me. If any sheep, he says, all that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. Notice he says, any man there, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. He says, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. So the nature of the Good Shepherd is authority. It is truth. The purpose of the Good Shepherd is life. And not just eternal life, but abundant life in Christ. The safety to go in and out. We've talked about the freedom of the Christian life. We even sang about it a little bit this evening as we talked about the reality that the Christian life is not just freedom to go to heaven, but it is freedom to live this life on earth. It is freedom to live this life in such a way that we might please God. That's what Jesus Christ is saying here. My purpose is to bring you life and more abundant life to allow you to go in and out because your shepherd is protecting you to give you the freedom To live your life. The nature of the Good Shepherd, truth and authority. The purpose of the Good Shepherd, abundant life. Third and finally, the ministry of the Good Shepherd in verses 11 through 21. We see three elements of this ministry. See the nature of his ministry in verses 11 through 15. Now, the question we have to ask is this How is the Good Shepherd, whose nature is truth and whose purpose is abundant life, how will he accomplish this goal? How is it that he can accomplish this goal of life through this nature which is truth and authority? Look at verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. Jesus paints a contrast between the one who is simply hired to watch the sheep and the shepherd of the sheep. Again, remember, we're talking parable. We do not need to know who these hirelings are. Specifically, We do not need to try to qualify or to quantify them. The teaching is not about the hireling. The teaching is about the shepherd of the sheep. So look at verse 12 and 13. He that is a an hireling and not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, seeth the wolf coming and leaveth the sheep and fleeth. And the wolf catcheth them and scattereth the sheep. The hireling fleeth because he is a an hireling and careth not for the sheep. I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known... Of mine. When a man is hired to do a job, he enters that job with the expectation of being paid for his job. A man looks for a job that will pay him in exchange for his labor so that he can live and so that he can perhaps support a family. And even if that man does the job to the very best of his abilities, it still stands to reckon that it is only a job and that there are many other things in his life that are far more important to him than that job. There are far more important things in the lives of the men of this church than simply the job that they have. They have families. They have spiritual lives. They have things to them that are of a higher priority at the end of the day than the money that they are exchanging for their time and for their labor. When I was a roofer, I exchanged time and labor for money. I put in a full day's work and I got a full day's wage. However... We at the roofing company, as it were, were just hirelings. We exchanged our time and our labor for our money. Now, this meant that there were certain things that me as a hireling, were not, I was not willing to do. Every once in a while, I would have the, the boss come up to me and say, Hey, do you want to do a job for me on this roof? And he would describe the roof to me. And as he would describe it, he'd say, we've got a, a roof that is such number of degrees, very steep perhaps. The pay is normal, are you interested? And I would think about how steep that roof is and I would think about how much I would be getting paid to step up on that steep slick roof and I would say you know what I'm not interested in trying to exchange my time and my labor for perhaps my life today. I'm going to pass on that one that one's a bit too steep for me to feel comfortable because if that roof is so steep, you know, you can clip yourself in and all of those sorts of things. But there, are, there were just certain limits to the degree to which I was willing to exchange my time and my labor for money. I never got to a point where I needed money so much that I was willing to severely risk my life up on that roof. If it was too steep, hire someone else to do it. I've got plans that don't include dying. So let's just, let's just move on to another roof. Call me when the next one comes around. This is what Jesus is saying here. You know, a hireling is not invested into the life of the sheep. So he is not willing to give his life for the sheep. If a pack of wolves comes and the hireling fears his life, he is more than willing to jump off of that, that place where he was sitting, guarding that door, and run for his life before and let those sheep get eaten before he's going to get eaten himself if a band of 10 thieves come by and he's the only one guarding those sheep and he's just a hireling and he's just exchanging time for money, he's going to run and let those sheep be taken before he is going to subject himself to potentially death for those sheep. But the shepherd, you see, the sheep were his life. If he lost his sheep, he lost his livelihood. He lost that which sustained himself and his family. The sheep were everything to him. So was he willing to risk his life for the sheep? He was indeed willing to risk his life for the sheep. We recognize in the life of David, a man who would be protecting his sheep from a lion, from a bear. He protected those sheep because those sheep were his sheep. They were his family's livelihood. They were shepherds. That's what they did. And so Jesus is painting the contrast here between the hireling, the man that's just exchanging time for money, and the true shepherd. Jesus Christ says, all that came before were hirelings. I'm the true shepherd. I give my life for the sheep. The extent of the ministry in verse 16, within the parable that Jesus has used, he has referenced one sheepfold one set of sheep. This sheepfold was intended to be a representation of Israel. Jesus Christ testified in Matthew fifteen twenty four that he was only sent by God to the lost sheep of Israel. But in verse 16, notice what he says, other sheep have, I have, excuse me, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring and they shall hear my voice and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. And so Jesus Christ says, I've got this fold, this sheep fold, and they hear my voice. And he was speaking to Israelites about Israel. He says, but there is another sheep fold. I have other sheep. And the same thing's going to happen. I'm going to call, and they're going to hear my voice, and they're going to come. And at the end of the day, these sheep and these sheep, these sheep of the Jews and these sheep of the Gentiles are going to come be one fold. We're going to have one fold because there is only one shepherd. And that will be the day when we all stand in heaven, the church triumphant, recognizing that there is no difference between Jew and Greek and Gentile and any culture and any gender because we are all one fold. The nature of his ministry, the extent of his ministry. Look with me finally in verses 17 through 21 at the result of his ministry. Jesus Christ said, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again. This commandment, however, I received of my Father. The result of the ministry of the shepherd to the sheep is complete approval and love from God. Now, this must not be missed. We hear talk of other gods other prophets, other religions that claim to have a representative of the one true God. But, (coughs) excuse me, while there have been many men that have claimed to be a representative of God, there is only one man, only one representative of the true and living God that has in fact fulfilled the will of the Father in claiming the sheep, in dying for the sheep, in taking up his life again. And in doing so, he claimed the exclusive authority to save the souls of men. Jesus laid down his life for the sheep as only he could do. Verse 18 makes it clear that his life was not taken from him, but that he yielded it. He gave it up. He laid it down that he will give it up and that he had the power to take it back again. Here Jesus prophesies of his own resurrection of the dead. And so Jesus has claimed without doubt that he is the exclusive means by which one may receive eternal life. Don't listen to the people today that say there are many roads to heaven. Don't listen to the common politically correct rhetoric that you can get there through Allah Or you can get there through Jesus. Or you can get there through the Buddha. Or you can get there through the Dalai Lama. Or you can get there through meditation or transcendentalism or humanism. It's okay. They all lead to God. They don't all lead to God. There is one shepherd of the sheep. There is one door of the sheep. Jesus Christ says here that he is it. If it's not through Christ, then it's not to God. If it's not through Christ, then it's not to God. As we have come to expect now, there are two types of people that heard Jesus' words. In verse 20, it says, And many of them said, 'He hath a devil, and is mad. Why hear ye him? Verse 21, another group says, These are not the words of him that hath a devil. Can a devil open the eyes of the blind? Verse 19 said, And there was... Division, therefore, again, among the Jews. The gospel is divisive. We've seen it from John chapter 1 to John chapter 10. The gospel is divisive. Men believe. Men don't believe. We see both. And it doesn't change what they heard about Jesus Christ or what they saw in Jesus Christ. Men chose to believe or they chose to disbelieve. Now, Jesus Christ's ministry as the Good Shepherd holds great implications for us. As we close, let me ask us a few questions. Knowing that Jesus Christ is the Good Shepherd, the question is this. Are you one of his sheep? Have you ever responded to the call of the Good Shepherd? Jesus Christ said that any man that hears his voice shall be saved and we shall go in and shall go out and shall be given that life and a life more abundantly. Have you responded to the call? Are you, a shepherd of, are you a sheep of the shepherd? Second question for us this evening, those of us who have accepted Jesus Christ, which is the majority of us in this room. Are you careful to distinguish between the good shepherd and a thief or a hireling? does what you believe have strong roots in the reflection of the word of god or is your foundation upon the teaching of a man or a philosophy do you see jesus christ as the only true way or are you beginning to get this idea that you know there are a lot of other ideas a lot of philosophies out there and maybe just maybe uh, what happens if they don't hear of jesus christ does that mean jesus christ that i am the way The truth and the life. People might ask you, how do you know that it's just Jesus? How do you know that it's the one way? Can you tell them it's because Jesus Christ is the only one that fulfilled the will of God? Because Jesus Christ is the only one that is the shepherd of the sheep? Because he's the only one that entered through the law and the prophets? Because he's the only one that fulfilled the expectations of the Old Testament? Jesus Christ is the only one because he's the only one that laid down his life for the sheep. Jesus Christ is the only one because he's the only one that's had the authority and the power to take up his life again. Jesus Christ is the only one because he's the only one that has received verbal as well as divine stamp of approval by God through his life and through his ministry. You see it in no other prophet You see it in no other claimed man of God. You see it in no other religious leader. In Jesus Christ alone do we have all of the elements of the one who can take a sinful man and reconcile him with a holy God.